Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's American Passages. I'm Dr. J. Today's American Passage is from Catherine Maria Sedgwick's 1827 novel, Hopelessly, or Early Times in Massachusetts. Hopelessly, like James Fenimore Cooper's The Last of the Mohicans, which came out only a year earlier, is an old-fashioned American novel filled with melodrama, adventure, and romance. In Hopelessly, we find Indian raids, kidnappings, jailbreaks, pirates, explosions, chase scenes, a love triangle, a sinister imposter, you name it. But if, like me, you're faint of heart, don't worry. The passage I've chosen has none of these things. Instead, it has the title character, Hopelessly, a young woman of 17 or so, out on a hike with some of her elders. Before I begin the passage, let me give some background and then set the scene. Hope Leslie's author, Catherine Maria Sedgwick, was born in Stockbridge, Massachusetts in 1789, just 18 months after the ratification of the United States Constitution. Her childhood and our nation's childhood were one and the same. Her family was prominent in New England society in the spheres of business, church, politics, and law. Her father, Theodore Sedgwick, at the age of 35, eight years before Catherine's birth, successfully argued the case of a woman who claimed her freedom from her slave owner based on the newly ratified Constitution of Massachusetts. The case, argued in 1781, set the precedent that soon led to the recognition that the Massachusetts Constitution, without specifically saying so, outlawed slavery within the state. The woman set free named herself Elizabeth Freeman and went to work for Mr. Sedgwick, eventually becoming the nanny for Catherine and her brothers. Hopelessly is a historical novel set in early colonial Massachusetts. The title character, Hope Leslie, is an orphan under the guardianship of a Mr. Fletcher, who has come to America with his wife and children as part of the Great Puritan Migration of 1630. Mr. Fletcher isn't entirely happy with his fellow Puritans. He shares their faith, but not their sternness, and so has made his way to western Massachusetts, homesteading a farm outside Springfield. It's here that Hope is taken in by Mr. Fletcher. Before being orphaned, Hope had been raised in the Church of England, which the Puritans opposed, but now she has a spirit that is more free and independent than was acceptable to either Anglican or Puritan. This spirit, which Sedgwick sees as the true American spirit, is revealed in everything she does, including going on a hike with her guardian. We learn of this hike in a letter Hope writes to Mr. Fletcher's son, Everill, who is away in London. Later in the novel, Hope and Everill will constitute two-thirds of the love triangle already mentioned. At this early stage of the novel, they are merely good friends. The hike itself is Sedgwick's fictionalized account of the actual naming of Mount Holyoke near Northampton, Massachusetts just as Hope Leslie is Sedgwick's fictionalized account of America coming into being. 
The tone of Hope's letter is cheerful and playful, but it reveals a spirit nevertheless thoughtful and serious. Let's begin. Dear Everell, Hope writes, We are going tomorrow on an excursion to a new settlement on the river called Northampton. Your father feared the toils and perils of the way for me, but has consented reluctantly to my being of the party. Aunt Grafton remonstrated and expressed her natural and kind apprehensions by alleging that it was, quote, very unladylike and a thing quite unheard of in England, end quote, for a young person like me to go out exploring a new country. I urged that our new country develops faculties that young ladies in England were unconscious of possessing. She maintained, as usual, that whatever was not practiced and known in England was not worth possessing. But finally, she concluded her opposition with her old customary phrase, Well, it's peculiar of you, Miss Hope, which you know she always uses to characterize whatever opposes her opinions or inclinations. My good tutor, who would fain be my aegis-bearer, insists on attending me. You may laugh at him, Everell, and call him my knight-errant or squire or what you will, but I assure you he is a right godly and suitable appendage to a pilgrim damsel. I will finish my letter when I return. A journey of twenty miles has put my thoughts, which you know are ever ready to take wing, to flight. Here the letter pauses and then continues with a new date. 25th October, Thursday. Dear Everell, we followed the Indian footpath that winds along the margin of the river, that is, the Connecticut River, and reached Northampton without any accident. There is but a narrow opening there, scooped out of the forest, and Mr. Holyoke, wishing to have an extensive view of the country, engaged an Indian guide to conduct your father and himself to the summit of the mountain, which rises precipitously from the meadows and overlooks an ocean of forest. I had gazed on the beautiful summits of this mountain, that in this transparent October atmosphere were as blue and bright as the heavens themselves, till I had an irrepressible desire to go to them, and, like the child who cried for the horns of the moon, I should have cried too if my wishes had been unattainable. Your father acquiesced, as my conscience tells me, Everell, he does too easily, and nobody objected but my tutor, who evidently thought it would be unmanly for him to shrink from toils that I braved, and who looked forward with dread and dismay to the painful ascent. However, we all reached the summit without scathed to life or limb, and then we looked down upon a scene that made me clap my hands and my pious companions raised their eyes in silent devotion. I hope you have not forgotten the autumnal brilliancy of our woods. They say the foliage in England has a paler, sickly hue, but for our western world, nature's youngest child, she has reserved her many-colored robe, the brightest and most beautiful of her garments. Last week the woods were as green as an emerald, and now they look as if all the summer spirits had been wreathing them with flowers of the richest and most brilliant dyes. 
He must have a torpid imagination and a cold heart, I think, who does not fancy these vast forests filled with invisible intelligences. We lingered for an hour or two on the mountain. Mr. Holyoke and your father were noting the sites for future villages, already marked out for them by clusters of Indian huts. While the gentlemen were thus engaged, I observed that the highest rock of the mountain was crowned with a pyramidal pile of stones, and about them were strewn relics of Indian sacrifices. It has, I believe, been the custom of peoples in all ages who were instructed only by nature to worship on high places. I pointed to the rude altar and ventured to ask Mr. Holyoke if an acceptable service might not have been offered there. He shook his head at me, as if I were little better than a heathen, and said, It was all worship to an unknown God. But, said your father, the time is approaching when through the valleys beneath and on this mount incense shall rise from Christian hearts. It were well, replied Mr. Holyoke, if we now in the spirit consecrated it to the Lord. And let me stand sponsor for it, said I, while you christen it Holyoke. I was gently rebuked for my levity, but my hint was not unkindly taken, for the good man has never since spoken of his namesake without calling it Mount Holyoke. My senses were enchanted on that high place. I listened to the mighty sounds that rose from the forest depths of the abyss, like the roar of the distant ocean, and to the gentler voices of nature borne on the invisible waves of air, the farewell notes of the few birds that still linger with us, the rustling of the leaves beneath the squirrel's joyous leap, the whizzing of the partridge startled from his perch, the tinkling of the cow-bell and the barking of the Indian's dog. I was lying with my ear over the rock when your father reminded me that it was time to return. We find in this passage much that's familiar in American literature, foremost the appreciation of American nature. We also find some conventions of the novels of the time, the gentle fun made of Mr. Craddock, the tutor, for instance. But blended with these are notes of Sedgwick's own, reflecting her vision of what America could and should be. Hope is a thoughtful, considerate person, but not one who takes religion too seriously. She makes gentle fun of the serious business of christening, offering to stand sponsor for the mountain as if it were a human infant. More seriously, her suggestion that the vast forest is inhabited by, quote, invisible intelligences, end quote, and her insistence on the phrase high places reflect a distinctly unchristian, pantheistic attitude. High places in the Old Testament were sites of pagan idol worship, similar to the pyramidal heaps of stones and relics of Indian sacrifices which Hope seems to approve of in her quietly pointed question to the pious Mr. Holyoke. You might ask why I consider Hope a thoughtful person, when there is so much lightness and playfulness in what she says and does. One instance that suggests this is her aside about her guardian, Mr. Fletcher. 
He already has consented to Hope being on the excursion, despite his fatherly concerns, and when Hope wishes to join as well the climb to the mountain summit, she relates to Everill that, quote, Your father acquiesced, as my conscience tells me, Everill, he does too easily, in my wishes. Mr. Fletcher throughout the novel is an appealing figure, a person of true Christian belief, but also mild and indulgent of Hope's independence. And Hope is aware of this and appreciative. She doesn't have to exhaust her potential and struggle, but has the freedom to develop it. And it is the freedom to develop her potential as a woman that is at the heart of Hope Leslie. Let's return to the opening lines of our passage. Hope tells Everill of her father's reluctant consent to her going on the excursion. She then continues, quote, Aunt Grafton remonstrated and expressed her natural and kind apprehensions by alleging that it was, quote, very unladylike and a thing quite unheard of in England, unquote, for a young person like me to go out exploring a new country. I urged that our new country develops faculties that young ladies in England were unconscious of possessing, end quote. Now, when Aunt Grafton speaks of going out exploring a new country, she only means an unfamiliar place. But Hope, in her reply, takes the phrase to another level, to the new country of America, where young women can, quote, develop faculties that young ladies in England were unconscious of possessing. It's not simply that in America one can do what one isn't allowed to do elsewhere, but they can discover faculties within themselves that they wouldn't otherwise even know they have. This is the great boon of America. The American is a new man, Crevcour wrote in letters from an American farmer, who acts on new principles. He must therefore entertain new ideas and form new opinions. Such an American is hopelessly. This is what freedom is for. But is America today a society that wants its citizens to discover within themselves new faculties, new potentials, new ways of being in the world? This is what many of our teachers hope to foster at every level, but they now find themselves at odds with a society that has little more interest in its citizens than that they become good workers and good consumers who obey the laws and don't make trouble, who want nothing new but new cars and television sets and phones. The question we seem to be coming to today isn't just whether or not young people should read Catherine Maria Sedgwick's Hope Leslie, but whether they should read any books at all. I, of course, think they should, as many as possible of all different sorts. In the next episode of American Passages, I'll turn to a book of quite a different sort, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Until then, I'm Dr. J.